Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series focusing on issues related to religion and politics. In this episode, YDS alum Emily Judd interviews Randy Hollerith, a Yale Divinity School alum who serves as Dean of Washington National Cathedral, the second largest cathedral in the United States. Dean Hollerith discusses presiding over the presidential inaugural prayer services for both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. These inaugural prayer services are really in celebrations of this miracle that takes place every four to eight years of this peaceful transition of power in our country. He tells the miraculous story of how the cathedral found 5,000 face masks hidden in its crypt at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, you know, why change water into wine these days when you can just make masks? And Dean Hollerith talks about how Christian teachings can help heal divisions in the U.S. Jesus took people as he found them. He was not bound by social norms. He reached out to those and welcomed those and listened to those and encountered those people that his culture would tell him he ought to have nothing to do with. Welcome to the Quadcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dean Hollerith. You've been leading Washington National Cathedral, which is the second largest Episcopal cathedral in the United States since 2016. What has been the greatest challenge to your leadership during the COVID-19 crisis? Has the crisis brought any opportunities to the cathedral? Thank you. That's a that's a great question. The pandemic caused us to, like everything else in the country and around the world, to shut down pretty dramatically. And um, as a immense Gothic cathedral, uh, large amounts of our revenue come not only from the members of our congregation or those who support the cathedral around the country or around the world, but also through some revenue streams we have at the cathedral from our visitors and from events. And so that completely disappeared, and that's about $5 million in revenue. So it was uh, not only was it a big loss to our mission to close the doors, but it was also a big loss financially for the cathedral to have the doors closed. So we had to pivot really quickly um, to digital, you know, to being a completely digital entity like so many other institutions had to do. We were blessed uh, in that about six to eight months before the pandemic hit, we had completely redone uh, the video system in the cathedral completely upgraded it with 4K cameras and, uh, and had gone to a lot of expense to do that. And so we were able to pivot really quickly and produce some um, pretty high quality, not only worship services on Sundays and during the week, but our programmatic life as well. And uh, it had always been part of our strategic plan that we were going to build a digital cathedral. But we had planned for that to take five years, not five weeks. Uh, So (laughs) um, literally the whole cathedral sort of spun on its head and was placed on the shoulders of our videographer. We had one videographer on staff in the cathedral and he's done um, an incredible job. And uh, it really allowed us to fulfill our mission for this past year in ways that have been very surprising. There's been a lot of grace that has come out of this experience for us that I'd be happy to, that I'll talk more about as we, as we go on. Sure. I think one of the moments of grace, it seemed like, was early on in the pandemic in late March 2020, 5,000 face masks were discovered in the crypt of Washington National Cathedral during routine maintenance work, almost miraculously. How did this happen? Why were the masks in the crypt? 
Well, you know, why change water into wine these days when you can just make masks, right? I mean, <laughs> it is it is a great it is a great story. I mean, I didn't even know what an N95 mask was, quite frankly, at that point, right? I mean, none of us did. Uh, it turns out that um, years before I arrived here at the cathedral, uh, the cathedral had bought these masks along with a large amount of bottled water in preparation for a possible outbreak of the bird flu, which people were afraid was going to be across the country. And so the cathedral was trying to prepare for how can we make sure our guests are safe when they come to the cathedral. And of course, the bird flu outbreak never really materialized. And over the years, the water was given away or used for other purposes. But the masks stayed down in the subcrypt of the cathedral. And everyone forgot about them, except for our um, stonemason, Joe Alonzo, who's been here at the cathedral almost 30 years. And he remembered that they were down there. We were like, what? There are ma and so we pulled them all out. And the, the boxes were still sealed. Uh, they were dry. They were safe. And so we thought, well, how incredible. We can, you know, we'll have some masks for our own use, but then we'll be able to give away... I think we ended up giving away, you know, thousands to the Children's Hospital and to some other organizations. So we felt really blessed by that to, to be able to share those. And now during the pandemic, obviously churches and including Washington National Cathedral, like you said, had to make the shift from physical to digital worship. You mentioned that, you know, you had to turn around in five weeks, basically, and have this ready. What was the transition like? I guess for you as a pastor, but also for the community, because obviously there's something to be said for meeting in person and and having, you know, face-to-face -face interactions um, and being in the presence of a church. What was the transition like? Um, and do you think that digital worship could ever replace physical worship? I'll start with the, the last, sort of your last question. I don't think one will ever replace the other. But what was fantastic to discover is that there is um, real authenticity uh, to digital worship. Uh, it has a real place. It, it has a real effect. Uh, um, there is a sense of validity to it. I was very concerned that it was going to seem hollow and uh, completely insufficient, you know, when we started to do this, not to mention the fact it was really weird to be leading services in a completely empty Gothic cathedral where the only people, the only thing I'm looking at as I'm trying to preach or whatever is this camera, you know, this eye uh, was very, you know, clergy aren't, we aren't trained for that sort of thing. And uh, so that took a lot of learning curve for us to get comfortable with that. But you know, one of the graces, as I mentioned before, some of the grace that's come out of this has been amazing to see the amount of community that has developed because of these services around the country and around the world. You know, we have folks who join us for worship as far away as New Zealand. And... Um, They've come together in this sort of uh, virtual community that cares and supports one another. Um, one of my favorite things to do is when I'm not serving, we're only allowed to have a few of us up on the uh, what we say is the platform in the cathedral around the altar because of social distancing on any given Sunday morning. So the other clergy were at home. And um, my favorite thing to do when I'm at home is to be online uh, on our YouTube channel or our Facebook channel and to watch the chat that's going on. That chat took on a community life of itself. People would say, well, where's Tom today? I don't see him on here. 
Oh, I don't know. I don't know where Tom is. Somebody better check on Tom. You know, and this is someone in Minnesota checking on someone in California or someone in the south of Spain checking on someone who's um, in Africa. And um, that community sense had, a, had real legs to it. It wasn't, um, it wasn't hollow. <clears throat> we were providing community for people at a time when they really needed it. And uh, uh, that has been wonderful. We have loved that. We have loved being able to, to reach out and, and to build those relationships. One thing I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, a Pew Research survey conducted earlier this year found that nearly three in 10 Americans report a stronger personal faith because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Have you seen this mirrored in your congregation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's um, I think that's one of the keys of human nature, really. I mean, if you look at similar studies that were done right after 9-11, you know, you found a much larger percentage of people were going back to church or to synagogue or to mosque. You know, they were engaging in their religious practices more than they had in the past. And I think that comes from, um, in no small measure, from the fact that it is things like 9-11 or pandemics or earthquakes or whatever that sort of jar us out of the false reality that we are somehow in control of our lives because we are not in control of our lives. We have very, I mean, the fact is we have no say about when we come into this world. We have very little say about when we go out of this world. And when we have that existential realization of um, a lack of control, it makes us uh, question, where do I find my grounding? Where do I find my meaning? Um, where do I find the things for me to hold on to in the midst of stuff I can't control? And I think that um, I think that's the times when God can reach us, when God can poke us and uh, pull us in, back into either a tradition we once had or one we may have let slip or into a new realization of wanting to um, have an encounter of the holy. Now, you presided over the National Prayer Service for the inauguration of President Joe Biden, which was held January 21st in the nation's capital. I believe it was the first virtual event of its kind in history. What was that experience like? Well, you know, it's whether we're, uh, it's important to say, I think, that whether we're doing an inaugural prayer service for Donald Trump or Joe Biden, you know, um, having that role, that's one of the roles this cathedral has had um, for quite a while. Um, and it's not a coronation of a president or a celebration of a person. These inaugural prayer services are really in celebrations of this miracle that takes place every four to eight years of this peaceful transition of power in our country. And uh, the service is meant to lift up and give God thanks for that. And of course, this year it was more in question than it's ever been in our country with the events of January 6th. So um, it was especially important, I thought, that we celebrate uh, this transition of power and our democracy. And it was strange to do it digitally. We were able to keep it interfaith, um, as we've always tried to do. We think it's important that that service mirrors not only uh, the Christian tradition of the cathedral, but the religious tra various religious traditions of our country. So, you know, having um, religious leaders from all walks of faith take part was important. But I have to say, to watch the... Um, the president and his family and the vice president and her family watching us 
do the service. We're watching them watching us, and they're in the White House, and we're in the cathedral. It, you know, it was a little surreal, um, <laughs> but it worked. It worked, and uh, we were proud to be able to offer it. In your opening remarks at the prayer service, you prayed for God to, quote, take away the arrogance and hatred which infect our heart and break down the walls that separate us. You became dean of Washington National Cathedral in 2016, a time of growing division in our country. What do you think is the way to start bridging the divides we see and experience in the United States? That prayer that you quoted there is is a a wonderful old prayer from the prayer book, from our prayer book. And uh, we use that not only at Joe Biden's inaugural prayer service, but I also prayed that at Donald Trump's prayer service. And uh, it is um, a a prayer that I think is really central to our country right now. And I think uh, the church ought to be taking a central role. The church, the synagogue, the mosque ought to be taking a central role in, as Lincoln said, calling us to the better angels of our nature, lifting us up to the better angels of what it means to be an American. I think we have an important role to play there um, in helping us to see and experience one another beyond ideology. You know, we have gotten to the point in this country where we no longer disagree with one another. We now see one another as evil or good, and we've turned things into black and white, and we've lost a sense of the complexity of people and of issues. And if we're ever going to get past this point in our nation, it's going to be because we're going to have a heart large enough to actually encounter one another in all of our complexity. And I think the church has a role in doing that. That's what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus, Jesus took people as he found them. He was not bound by social norms. He, he reached out to those and welcomed those and listened to those and encountered those people that his culture would tell him he ought to have nothing to do with. And in the same way, uh, as religious leaders and as religious communities, we need to be doing that. We need to be opening up and listening to one another. Um, this is how we're going to come through this. It's, and the church ought to be playing a central role in that, in proclaiming a faith that is rooted in love and understanding and justice and peace, and not a Christian faith that we see all too often in this period that is about a xenophobia um, or about, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm in and you're out, or I'm good and you're bad, that it's got to be much better, much bigger than that. Whether it's... Um, Um, listening to folks for whom Black Lives Matter is critical to their lives or listening to lower and middle-income Americans who feel like their country no longer has a place for them. You know, these are um, beloved children of God, and we have to honor one another in that. And now, is there practical ways uh, that churches, and not just churches, religious spaces can bring people together. If I go to church, maybe half the people voted for Donald Trump, half of the people voted for Joe Biden. Um, Can churches serve as, you know, a space to bring these two people together or, um, you know, should religion stay out of politics? Those are two big questions, right? So uh, let me see if I can do justice in any way to either one of them. But first, there is from the, in the point of view of Christianity, Um, religion and politics, there's no way to divide the two. Uh, Jesus was political. 
Um, everything he's, many of the things he said and did had radical implications for how we treat one another, for what we value as human beings and for what we value as a society. Um, and so those implications are just there, just by reading the stories and commenting on them. To say that, that the faith, um, that Christianity is inherently political does not mean it's inherently partisan. And I think that's an important distinction to make, right? That's, that's first and foremost for me. Secondly, the church has always been a place that has been able to hold together people of different political persuasions. You know, on any given Sunday in many of the churches I've served in my career, if I asked people to raise their hand if they were Republican or raise their hand if they were Democrat, you know, the room would be split down the middle. And, um, and that's, that is how it should be. We should be coming together. The difference is, is that in years past, we might have different, differed in the ideas we had about how best to lead the country or to run the country. Um, and, but, but these ideas did not somehow define us as human beings. Now we're not looking at ideas as much as we are judging people for the ideas. And we need to get back to the point to say, you are my brother, you are my sister. I may disagree with you, and that's okay, and we need to have those conversations in church or out of church or wherever. But I have to learn to see and honor you as more than simply your ideological thinking around politics or anything else. I totally agree. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for answering that. You graduated with a master's in divinity from Yale Divinity School in 1990. Do you have a favorite YDS memory? Oh, I have so many of them. I, I, uh, I love my time at YDS. Um, my wife and I met at Yale. Uh, we were um, both, I was getting my MDiv to go into ordained ministry. She at the time was getting her MDiv to go into education, teaching. She ended up being, my wife Melissa ended up being ordained as well. So it's very special to me for purely that reason. I mean, I never thought in seminary I'd meet my wife. I mean, I, and I don't think she thought she'd meet her husband. You know, we were there for, you know, we were there for very other reasons, but God has a sense of humor and brought us together at that, at that time. So that was very special for us. I also, I loved the life of the refectory at Yale Divinity School. Um, and I really mourn the, the, that the refectory doesn't play the role that it used to there. Because, you know, when you were there with Episcopalians and Roman Catholics and Lutherans and Baptists and you know, UCC, we were all together and Methodists all thrown together in this um, wonderful melting pot of theological, ecclesiastical differences. When you sat around a table at dinner or at lunch, the conversations were fantastic. And the exposure you had to people from other uh, Christian traditions was really rich. And that still exists there, of course. But the refectory um, was just always special for me that, with, with, around that. I love the refectory as well. I remember we had to have a certain amount of meals or, or points. I can't remember at the refectory. And it was just always fun to go there and meet up with fellow students and talk about classes, life, everything. So I had the same experience. Obviously, we are going through a very challenging time, um, even as the COVID pandemic seems to, um, you know, be on its way out um, in terms of people are getting vaccinated and we're learning more how to cope with the situation. But many religious leaders are 
still doing digital worship, um, still having challenges because of COVID-19 in their ministry. What advice do you have for, for fellow religious leaders during this time? First and foremost, I think we have to realize and just accept that there's no going back. There is no returning to normal. There is only moving forward. And uh, our country is going to be different as a result of this pandemic. We've learned new ways of interacting with one another, new ways of working, new ways of connecting. And the church has got to move forward with that. Um, For us as the cathedral, what we realize is that as we come out of this pandemic and go back to worship in person, that our digital worship is going to continue to be just as important as our in-person worship. Before the pandemic, it was the case that, you know, our digital worship was simply a derivative of what was taking place in person for those who were gathered together in the building. And um, that can no longer be the case. They each, they each have their own authenticity and validity, and we're going to have to spend time and energy and money on both of them as we move forward. And I think it's full of great opportunity. It's full of great opportunity to be able to spread um, ideas and a style of Christianity, especially for us, that we think is critically important in our country right now. One based in love, one based in a search for justice, uh, a Christianity based on um, peace, forgiveness, and understanding, about tolerance not just being something that's important, but that's something that's a part of our faith, as well as this notion that inclusion, radical inclusion, was at the heart of Jesus' ministry and ought to be at the heart of our ministry. And now, uh, just following up on that, is there any uh, teaching from Jesus or, you know, Bible verse that... It- that you look to during this time or that you have comfort that, that gives you comfort during this time that uh, maybe other religious Christian religious leader leaders should uh, draw upon. Oh, there's so many of them. Um, there's so many of them. You know, we've been reading, uh, we've been reading these past couple of Sundays, uh, the commandments to love, to love one another as I have loved you. And that has been the mantra for me. Um, not only during this COVID time, but for many years now, that my ministry and that uh, the ministry of the church, as I understand it, is to be a vehicle of love. And that doesn't mean um, love purely in how one feels about another person. That means love in the sense of how we honor another human being. It means love in the sense of, of um, being willing to, to value another human being simply because they are. And I think, uh, I think that value, that central notion of God, that God is love and God commands us to love, um, has been the, um, the thing that has kept me grounded during this time. Well, thank you so much, Dean Hollerith, for joining us in this conversation today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking and thanks for the good work you're doing. Thank you so much.